0: Welcome to the Husband Material Podcast, where we help Christian men outgrow porn. Why? So you can change your brain, heal your heart, and save your relationship. My name is Drew Boa, and I'm here to show you how. Let's go. Today on the show, I am excited again, well, actually excited for the first time, to welcome Dr. Jake Porter from Houston, Texas, founder of Daring Ventures, And there's a lot we could say about who you are, but Jake, what do people need to know?
1: Well, uh, first of all, Drew, they need to know I'm thankful for your invitation to be here. I I love to talk about uh, the stuff we're going to be getting into. I think what they need to know about me is that um, I'm a recovering addict myself. I'm married. Uh, I have one child who is um, nine months old. and Yeah. So I was awake for many hours last night. Um, <sighs> but, uh, those are some of the, the really important things about me. I used to be a pastor. I was a pastor for 13 years. Now I'm a, a licensed professional counselor and, um, and I primarily work with couples who are trying to sort of unwind and get out of and out from underneath all the effects of trauma and, addiction um, and step into, you know, flourishing relationships. So uh, that's my passion. That's what I do. And that's what I hope to talk about today.
0: Awesome. And you've created something called Couple Centered Recovery, which we can get into a little bit. Today, we're talking about one of the most important words when it comes to trauma and addiction and healing. And that word is attachment.
1: Yes. Yes. And not the thing that you forget to actually put on the email, right? Uh, <laughs> not that kind. Um, yeah. Attachment. In fact, I am so uh, like given over to the ideas of attachment theory that the name of my practice, Daring Ventures, was lifted from a quote from a guy named John Bowlby, who was the father of attachment theory, he was a British psychologist uh, back in like early and mid twentieth um, century, and and what he found is that there's this paradox in life, okay, where the more securely attached I am to the most important people in my life, so the more confidence I have to be close to them, that they're not going to leave me, that they're going to be there, the more freedom I to like go explore life and have a full life and an abundant life in all the right, good, healthy ways. And so there's this sort of paradox, like the more security I feel in the relationship, the more freedom I feel to launch out and try things. So he said, Bowlby said, life is best organized as a series of daring ventures from a secure base. Okay, so that's that's the name of my practice. That's how committed I am to, to attachment theory. I, I took the the name of the practice right from a, a quote from the founder of the theory. Wow!
0: Daring ventures, and anybody who's listening to this podcast is taking a daring venture towards freedom and healing from pornography.
1: Yes, yeah, and it and it really is uh, for a number of ways, and we'll we'll get into all of this today, I'm sure, because our attachment system is always like doing things to keep us safe. And, and the way I conceptualize of what's going on often with sex addiction, pornography addiction is that it's really a disordered attachment. Okay. It's a disordered attachment. And so when, if, if, if I have become attached in a disordered way to this thing that really helps me feel safe in some way, helps me maintain, helps me, you know, navigate or so I believe if I'm walking away from that. That's a big deal. It's scary. Yeah. 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 And it's really important then to know that I have an actual real, healthy, secure, firm foundation sort of attachment uh, to turn to in its
0: place. So in other words, attachment is really at the core. Absolutely. Yeah. It's at the core of who we are. It's at the core of what we're struggling with. And what's really cool is that it's at the core of healing too. Yes.
1: Yeah, it it really is, like you said, the core of who we are. It is fundamental to our being. In Genesis 1, when God says, let us, right? I mean, here's God saying us, let us make man in our image, right? God made man in his image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And then follow that up with, you know, and it's good and it's good and it's good. But the very first thing that's not good is that man would be alone. We are knit together in the image of a God who exists as relationship. I mean, God is relationship. We bear that print upon our being. And so being in relationship is fundamental to being human. And, uh, and and sin, you know, I I could we could probably spend the rest of our time today uh, walking through Genesis one, two, and three about how um, really sin was an attachment rupture between God and man, and between the man and the woman. Right? Like they start to hide from each other, and then they hide from God, and shame is introduced, and now there's this lack of security between them. So, uh, yeah, it is very much core to who we are. Yes. And there's fear. Oh, yeah. Shame, shame is about, it, it, shame is the experience of fear and pain of disconnection, the fear and the pain of disconnection um, that I'm going to be put out, that I'm not going to have a place here with you anymore, right? That's scary and that's painful. Yeah and um, yeah yeah and it 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 drives us to do all sorts of crazy things,
0: right? And it starts very early. We're born into this world as babies and kind of the Genesis one of our lives, mm-hmm. and then what happens next?
1: Okay. Well, what happens is we're born sinners to parents who are sinners, right? Um, one of the things that I tell people I, when, when folks are going to come and, and work with me, um, I have them do this battery of assessments. And one of the things I always have them do is a, an assessment called a PTSIR, which stands for post-traumatic stress index revised. And some people are like, I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't have any traumas. Like, what do you, you know, what, and what I say to them, why do I need to take that one? What I say to them is, yeah, if you live and move about this sin-sick, broken world, you have post-traumatic stress going on. It's just some of us also are more resilient and are able to, you know, maneuver in healthy ways where it doesn't uh, become a problem in our lives, but others of us so much. And a lot of that has to do with the the early experiences that we have in our attachment relationships from inf- infancy, early childhood and and then really through adolescence are very formative for us.
0: Jake, I want to invite you to help us understand what should happen when we were little babies, when we were little boys and yeah. then what often happens instead.
1: Absolutely. That's a that's a wonderful invitation and I accept. Okay, so um Yeah, let's talk about, uh, I use the term optimal development. Let's talk about what optimal development would look like, okay? So first of all, it's not perfection. So let's just set that aside. Perfection is not what would be optimal. In fact, the way God created us, we need imperfection. What? To have optimal development. Yes. So take my nine-month-old baby, all right? So she is at this state around seven months is when they start to understand that distance means separation, separation, anxiety begins. Okay. She's signaling for closeness. She's not just sing- signaling now because she's uncomfortable because of a wet diaper or she's hungry. Now she's signaling because she wants closeness. Okay. So she's signaling to me and, uh, we, my wife and I could come up with a few different ideas here. One thing we could do is we could say uh, she needs to learn that she has to sleep through the night and we could ignore her signaling, uh, which doesn't lead her to learn to self-soothe. It leads her to learn that signaling doesn't work. Okay, that's one option we could could make. Another option we could take is that we could say, you know what? All right, we're going to arrange our lives so that our baby never has to be alone. We could mm-hmm. always be there. She, we don't want her to ever feel uh, abandonment or misattunement at all. And so all we do, one of us is always consciously there. Now, here's the problem with that. The way God designed us, we actually need the rupture, the experience of ruptured attachment followed by the repair of that rupture to feel security about the relationship. Wow. If the baby doesn't experience the rupture and then have that followed by the experience of the repair, the baby will always wonder what would happen if we left, if we were gone. Oh man. Okay. And so the, the, the cycle of repair of of rupture rupture and repair, rupture and repair, rupture and repair actually increases the strength of the attachment and and the security of the attachment. Okay. So optimal development is not perfect parenting. It's, and this is literally what is in the, uh, in the textbooks. It is good enough parenting, which means you're attuned enough that Most of the time you (laughs) recognize there's a rupture and you're able to repair it and comfort the child and soothe the child. And, and when that happens over and over and over again, what gets ingrained literally at the level of the neural substrates in the brain and in the nervous system is the, this pattern that mom comes back, dad comes back. They're really there they're not really gone. They're not gone for good. I'm still okay. Right. That's what gets, gets programmed down in there. Now I think it's also important though to say like, what does that look like? What does the repair look like? Yeah. Right. So what, and and think about if you're holding a baby, all right, Uh, you're holding a baby and the baby gets upset. What's the very first thing in Instinctually, the very first thing that you do, you look at the baby. You've seen these people like in the checkout line at the grocery store, and the kid is just screaming, and the you know, the mom or the dad is like bouncing the baby on their hip, but not looking at the baby, still looking at their phone or whatever, and the baby is not getting calm, even though the mom's going, shh, or that it's going, it's okay, it's okay, but they're not looking at the baby. So when we look at the baby. You know, the eye is actually an exposed part of the nervous system. Our nervous systems sync up. And what happens, the very next thing that happens instinctually is that my face will mirror the baby's face. Now, those who are listening aren't going to be able to see the goofy faces I make right now, but maybe they'll they'll hear it in my voice. So if the baby's like crying and upset, then we go, oh, what's the matter, Right. Or maybe the baby was surprised by something and we go, what is it? Okay. Or maybe the baby um, is screaming out of exhilaration and we go, yeah, that's so great. But instinctually, when we look at the baby and we see the baby's face, what happens is that our mirror neurons perceive, kind of make up what, what we think the baby is feeling, and lightning fast, our, we feel in our body, non-consciously usually, we feel in our body what our mirror neurons are telling us the baby is feeling in the baby's body, and then our face responds matching the baby, and this experience actually uh, of mirroring the baby over time helps the baby learn to understand his or her own emotional experience, Okay. Yeah. Then after we mirror the baby and it's sort of a validation and acknowledgement of the emotional experience of the baby, then we can secure the baby. It's okay. I'm here. But only after we've mirrored the baby and just by the way, adults need the exact same process, right? Yeah. (laughs) Like a betrayed, a betrayed partner is. Uh, triggered by something and the husband goes straight to, it's okay. I'm not acting out. That's not what's going on. It doesn't get in. Look her in the eye, mirror her, feel her pain, then secure her. See if that makes a difference. That's a freebie thrown in there. Okay. So that's optimal because, because what's happening is this parent, the infant nervous system is not capable of regulating itself. Okay. Human beings are born genetically with this uh, with the potential to regulate our nervous systems. But, but that capacity actually has to be built out through an outside nervous system, regulating the infant's nervous system over and over and over, kind of building a scaffolding experience until the baby's able to do it on his or her own at some point in childhood. Okay. So if an infant or a child is not getting that good enough parenting, the mirroring and the comfort and the soothing.
0: That rhythm of rupture and repair happening. That's right. Then
1: they lack, they're gonna they're gonna grow up lacking the capacity to self-soothe, to regulate their emotions, their affect, which is the felt state of the body, in healthy ways. So they're gonna turn to other strategies for comfort and soothing and regulation, Mm -hmm. which is the setup for addiction.
0: Yeah. And that's why I often say that porn is a pacifier. Oh, I love it. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It, it, It is.
1: It is. It's, it's something in the moment, right? In the moment, it hits the right buttons neurochemically, to so that I'm not feeling something else right mm-hmm. but it doesn't actually deal with the source of that thing I'm trying not to
0: feel and many of us were exposed to porn and exploited by porn when we were little kids little boys yeah Absolutely. Yeah. And thank you for saying that
1: because that brings up something else. Because in case my mom or dad listens to this podcast, let me just say, you know, it's not always mom and dad being, you know, not good enough parents. There can be traumas that come along that that there wasn't then the resources for that child to integrate it metabolize it in a way that keeps um, keeps them from developing some of these issues so early introduction to pornography pornography especially you know video high-speed internet video pornography is a super stimulus to the brain the brain of a five-year-old or a 10 year old or even a 13 14 15 year old is not equipped to handle what you know, high speed internet porn does to the brain. But, you know, it could also be, you know, actual sexual molestation, a sexual experience with another person could even be just another child. Um, but it could be enough that it it triggers uh, an overwhelm in the brain, which is a form of trauma um, that sets up future consequences.
0: Right. And so now as I'm hearing you describe attachment and What we all need developmentally Mm -hmm. in order to progress, in order to kind of adulthood, porn comes in and creates this huge rupture. And if my parents were holding a lot of fear and shame themselves about sexuality and we never talk about it, there's no possibility for repair. Yeah,
1: yeah. Often, so what often happens, I think, is that, okay, if there's not an openness, you know, about sex and sexuality, there are not regular um, conversations going on, which, I mean, when I grew up in the 80s, there was no internet pornography, right? So uh, today, though, like parents out there, these conversations need to be happening regularly and no. Five year old, five years old is not too young. There are ways to have an age appropriate conversation. Um, um, what what happens is that if if uh, if if a child, let's say let's say a five year old, okay, sees pornography, stumbles onto it, is shown it at school, you know, um, an older cousin, what whatever, you know, that but they're exposed. What's going to happen is there's a, there's a sequence of events that, that often happens. Number one, it's exciting because we're wired for it to be exciting. Okay, it's, it's exotic. When you're five and you've never seen that kind of thing and you don't know what, what all is going on um, and, and you already have a biology, yeah, even at five where there's this attraction to that it may not be fully developed as romance or whatever, but your body begins to respond and there's an intrigue and there's a, uh, a, a draw there. But at the same time, there's also this overwhelm, fear, maybe even disgust right going on. Well, hold on if this is wrong, which a part of me feels like this was wrong, but I part of me liked it. What does that say about me? And that's where a lot of kids get mixed up. So my body was responding or my brain was wanting it, but I also knew it was wrong and I feel bad about it. What does that say about me? And so there's this shame that, that gets developed. And, and then what's happened is there's a fusion now from early on, early in the, in the, um, the, the laying of those foundational neural pathways around sexuality there's a fusion between sex and shame. And and so what does that lead to? Secrecy. I can't talk about yeah. it. Gotta hide it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then we take that with us for years and years. Absolutely. Yeah, we carry we carry
1: that on and and, and our bodies mature and our knowledge grows. Um, but this underlying fundamental belief that uh, sex is bad. I'm bad because of the way I feel about sex, I shouldn't talk about it. It should be kept in the dark. It's safer to to leave it over here, you
0: know, in this closet all alone, leaving it in the dark little closet rather than having that secure base from which I can go and be courageous.
1: Yeah. I mean, one of my favorite resources to point parents to is this book, good pictures, bad pictures. I don't know if you've uh, heard of that or talked about that on the podcast. I think it's a great resource. And one of the things that I love about it is it, it in a way that is very appropriate to, you know, a six, seven, eight year old kid. It makes the point like you're, if you see you, if you see this and you probably will, you're going to feel all sorts of things and that's normal. Yeah. Nothing wrong with you. And you can come and tell me and you're not going to be in trouble. Right? Like, Kids need to know that, especially today.
0: I have some kids too, an eight-month-old who sounds like he's very close to the age of your baby. Yes. And uh, so I've been reading a lot of kids' books. and watching a lot of kids' shows sometimes. Uh-huh. And one of those shows has a song that says this. Sometimes you feel two feelings at the same time, and that's okay. <laughs> I
1: love it. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Um
1: it's hard to feel two feelings at one time. It's a lot easier what the brain tries to do is it picks the one that it determines will keep us safest and it neglects the other. Man. Yeah. And so and so part of what we need to do with kids and this is part of what I do with adults is I say let's just make room for all the parts. All the parts are welcome here, all the feelings. Let's let's give space for all of them Um, and not, not exile a part of yourself, right? Not, not um, dissociate a part of yourself because it's all important. Yeah. Yeah.
0: What we're talking about here is, is an approach to understanding ourselves and our relationships, which works equally well for infants as it does for adults. Absolutely. So Jake, for somebody who is a Christian man struggling with pornography as an adult beginning to realize hey um I don't remember a lot of my childhood but I think I'm I think I didn't get what I needed um and maybe that's showing up in my sexual behavior Mhm where do I go from here when it comes to attachment
1: Yeah that's a that's a great question um well start attaching. (laughs) That's, that's number one, like start just taking some risk relationally. Um, I've never met anyone who did recovery successful in isolation, never. And so support groups, 12 step groups, you know, different men's groups, communities where you are building relationships, you're taking risk, you're knowing others and you're being known by them. That is essential. Why? Because that's what kills off the shame, right? Shame says, keep it in the dark. Don't say it right. Like keep, you know, don't put that out there. Everyone would hate you, you know, whatever. And the way we Uh, deal with shame is we take that shame. We wrap it up in words. We put it out in the light for others to hold it in the light with us. And then it dissipates. Then it goes away. It's like, Oh wow. You're still here. Oh, you still take my calls. Oh, you're still looking at me. Yeah. Yeah. You're still looking at me. You're still smiling at me. What is that about? Weirdo. You freak. Uh, Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's, it's a experience that's really uh, jarring For a lot of us, when we first allow ourselves to be fully known and often, you know, if, if guys are, are single, then yeah, go find a men's group because, um, I I heard it said one time, actually a, a therapist of mine who was a woman said this to me and, and it just rang true and it stuck with me. She said, Jake, only, only a man can help a man feel like a man. (laughs)
0: <laughs> so good.
1: Like what, 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 you know, cause here I was, I mean, I was young and I'm like, you know, a serial dater at this point in, in recovery, but like still not rightly ordered in all my relationships. And, uh, and, and she recognized what was going on. Okay. Maybe I'm not acting out in these bottom line behaviors, but I'm still looking for something. And I was looking for, am I a man? And I was looking for it from whoever the next, next match was on eHarmony. Okay. And, uh, and so she really challenged me to just hit pause on all of those relationships. Okay. And go like really invest in my men's groups that I was already a part of, but wasn't all in. Hmm. So, so there's that. And then if you're, if you're married um, and if it's very early after your wife's discovery, like if she's discovered, uh, your, your addiction, you're acting out and she's experiencing betrayal trauma, she really may not have the capacity right now, um, to, to be that person, uh, at first. So again, go to your men, go to your men and begin putting it all out there with them and And here's where the couple center recovery part, you mentioned I developed a model called couple center recovery. It's all about attachment. It's actually a lot of it's based on infant child or infant parent attachment studies, just applying that to adults. Um, uh, Get ready to be fully known by your partner through a process of formal disclosure. Get ready to tell her everything.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about that because my wife if i'm married is probably the person that i'm most afraid of opening up to yeah absolutely
1: and rightly so right rightly so but let's let's think about let's think about the consequence of not putting it all out there okay so if i have this fusion between sexuality and shame and that's driven me to live in secret okay and i I put out 99% of what I've done, but i hold back 1%. I still know I'm holding back the 1%. And I'm still now walking around in the world and more specifically in that relationship, wondering if she knew that last piece, would she still be with me? And that is going to keep me from being all in. And she's going to know it because our nervous systems sync up and we are far more intuitive and attuned to one another than we consciously realize. So me holding back even one percent, she is going to know it, and she's going to hold back. She's going to either hold back or she's going to be saying, "There's more. What's going on? And what's that going to bring up? Enough us? Not enough? You know, failure, hopelessness is going to reinforce what? Oh, the belief that you know, see, if she really knew, she wouldn't love. It. And it's just going to feed the old cycle. That's one thing to consider that's going on. The other thing to consider is um, don't you deserve, don't you deserve to be fully known and loved? Yes. Why would you settle for less? I know it is scary as, mm, you know, I'm not going to say it on this good Christian podcast.
0: Well, you can say it, man.
1: It's scary as hell, right? It's scary as hell um, to to think she's going to know it all. Um but you deserve, you deserve to not have to manage what your life partner knows about you. Mm. That, and your life partner deserves to not be managed in yeah. what she knows about her partner. I mean, you both deserve
0: more. And you've talked a, a little bit about the power difference and maybe even the injustice of that. Oh, yeah. What do you mean? So, um, Okay.
1: There's a a key difference between infant-parent attachment and adult attachment, and that is the power differential, right? With a parent and a child, there is a necessary, right, healthy power differential that is to be recognized and stewarded well. In adult-to-adult attachment, we are equals. We are equals. Maybe we have different you know roles and responsibilities and all this, but we are equals. Okay. And um and so what that means is in in this dyad, so so a dyad is is when two one person systems decide they're gonna be one two person system. Okay. All right. So so now the coupleship is the survival unit. All right. I'm all in. In other words, if it's not good for the relationship, it's not good for me. I never have to choose between what's best for me, Jake individually, and what's best for my marriage because what's best for my marriage is what's best for me. That's kind of a paradigm shift. That's a huge paradigm shift. And it protects you from resentment and toxicity and victim mentality and all kinds of stuff because I'm not choosing my wife over me. I'm choosing my wife and me. And I'll give you the biblical basis for it real quick. I know we're on a tangent. I'll come back. Okay. I'll come back to the power differential in, in Ephesians five, it talks about uh, the parallel between marriage and Christ and the church. Right. And I always ask people for whom did Christ die? And they say, well, for us or for the church, but, but think about what that passage says. It says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Okay. So for the church that he might wash her with the water of the word Having cleansed her, um, you know, then he says that he might present the church to himself in splendor Mm. without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. So he died for the church for himself. And right after that, it says that husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Christ died for the church for himself. This either or that biblical love is that like I lose, like I have to lose so my wife can win is hogwash. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that when my wife wins, when I set her, her up for a win, I'm winning too. Okay. So it's it's not either or, it's both and. It's that what's best for my wife and my marriage is what's best for me. Okay. So that's that's being a dyad that's saying we're not two one person systems whose lives kind of bump into each other on certain points. We are one, two person system with one shared life. We are the survival unit here. We got the couple bubble going. It's us back to back against the world. Okay. Now, to stay in that means we tell each other everything, no secrets and we both put the relationship first. If I am with if my wife thinks that we are both in that couple bubble. That's a phrase from Stan Tatkin who's a couple therapist in California actually. Um if we're both in that couple bubble and, and she thinks we're both there and so things aren't perfect. Yeah, there are challenges. Yeah, there are issues that come up but we're both trying to live by these principles and do this thing. Okay? But but the reality is that I'm outside that bubble. I use the analogy of a coaster. Okay. I'm off the coaster. Like being on the coaster means I'm all in. Okay. I'm telling everything. I'm putting the relationship first. I'm really off the coaster. Okay. And she finds that out. That's not safe. She's not safe to play by those rules anymore. Because what I've just done is I have, by withholding reality, I've disempowered her. I have taken from her the right to make choices based on what's really happening. Hmm. I have just stolen from her her right to make choices.
0: Well, that's the exact opposite of how it feels. It feels like if I bring up my secret porn habit that I'm going to be hurting her and I don't want to hurt her.
1: Oh, which is code for I'm really afraid of her pain. I I really need to protect myself from her pain. That's what that's code for. It's a cop out. Okay. Real men tell the truth. Okay. I mean, that's just that's just how it is.
0: Yeah, and for all the single guys, that applies to you too. We do the same thing with our men and our brothers who are in our lives. Absolutely,
1: we we hold back. You know, uh, I can't disappoint them, especially men who have leadership positions in the church, whether they're like formally pastors or maybe they're they're lay leaders in their churches, and they're like, oh, I would disappoint these people. Oh, me, 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 me. okay, yeah, you will. And it'll be worse if you allow your addiction to progress and then you get busted later or you hit bottom later. Yeah, it's it's going to rock some people's world when you come clean. That doesn't mean it's the wrong thing to do. Mm. It, it, again, you deserve to be known.
0: And you say that as someone who was a pastor and who was hiding. Yeah, absolutely.
1: I was hiding. I was hiding and uh, thinking I could manage it, thinking I could serve God in such a way that I serve my way out of my problem, pray my way out of my problem, whatever. And that didn't work. That didn't work at all. And and there were severe consequences for me and for my church in that. And I I still grieve that. Um, I still grieve that. Um, But. You know that's that that comes back to my faith in in the atonement and in, in the redemption of Christ and is He going to reconcile to Himself all things or not? Like, can He redeem all things? Can He cause all things to work together for good or
0: not? And um, I choose to believe He can.
1: Yeah. So I got to put it out there.
0: Yeah. And what I hear you saying is that when we believe the gospel, when we are thinking clearly, telling the truth, being brave, putting ourselves out there is the most loving thing we can do.
1: Absolutely. For ourselves and for the other person. Mm. And for the other person. And, and that pa- going back to your original question here that we we're on that, that power differential, if you're married, you've been withholding reality from, from your, your partner. Okay, that has been so disempowering to her without her knowing it. Now she's gonna, now she finds out and she realizes this whole time, you've been doing this this whole time for, for two years or five years or 20 years. Or I've had them in my office 60 years. I've had 80 something year olds here in my office. 60 years you've been lying to me about this. Um, it's, there's gonna be a period of time after that where there's going to be a readjustment. Of the power dynamic, and it is unreasonable unreasonable to believe that your wife is just gonna go right back to like playing by the same rules as you
0: and being equals, and, and
1: being being equals. I mean, you are equal, you're both made in the image of God and all this, but the dynamics, there's gonna be a period of justice, and there's gonna be a period of of earning the trust back that you've lost. And how are you gonna do that? You're gonna play by rules that aren't safe for her to play by. Now you're going to say it all and you're going to be all in while she's hedging and watching and saying, is he going to actually do this? Is he going to be consistent? Can he do it over a, you know, a sustained period of time? Is he really going to tell me everything now? Is he really going to make choices that put this marriage first? And if you do that, not perfectly, because again, rupture, repair, rupture, repair, rupture, repair, that will strengthen. That, that, that means I got to own up when I'm screw up. Hmm. Right. That's going to help me, not hurt me. Yeah. Just do the exact opposite. There's actually a Seinfeld episode where George starts doing the opposite of everything he would normally do. And like, he gets a girlfriend, he gets a job.
0: (laughs) That's what we got to do at first. Do the opposite. Yeah. Well, this takes us all the way back full circle to the beginning of the conversation where you said that for healthy, secure attachment, imperfection is necessary. Hmm. That was so mind blowing for me. Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. If if because if, because this is an issue of reality. Okay. The reality is no one is perfect, and your wife knows that, and your men's group knows that, <laughs> and so if you show up and you're broadcasting perfection, they know you're lying. Okay, it's not going to work. Okay? Yeah. That strategy is not going to work, not in the long run. And so, and so I've got to embrace my imperfection. I don't use it as an excuse to violate my values or violate others, but I but I own it. And and it's there's something about, I mean, we know this intuitively about other people. People who are willing to admit that they've made a mistake and bring that to us and own it and say, this is what I did and here's my plan to fix it. Do you not end up feeling safer around those people? Do you not end up trusting those people more? Of course you do. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's what our partners need from us. They need us to circle back and say, you know what, this morning when you asked me to take out the trash, I grumbled and I rolled my eyes. And that was, that was so unnecessary. And I know that that had to be hurtful. And you didn't say anything at the time. Thank you for not turning it into a fight right then, but I I caught, I catch it. I see, I did it. I'm sorry. It could be a little thing like that, but it's, it's about owning the fact that I make a difference in how I show up in the, in the relationship. What I do matters to myself and to my partner. And I'm going to own that.
0: Let's think about the person who's listening to this, who is very much hiding in isolation feeling like this this life of revealing my imperfections and handing them over to someone else in my men's group or in my marriage like that just feels so unsafe because i've been hurt so many times i've been rejected especially when i talk about the sexual area of life i've been shamed i've been condemned and so of course i'm i'm going to be in my little turtle shell because this is the only way I know how to live. Yeah. What I would say to
1: that that guy is um, pick one person. Start with one person. And and now and now here's the challenge. That's, that wasn't the challenge. The challenge is don't pick the person who you know is going to tell you what you want to hear. Don't pick the person who goes, oh, yeah, you don't want to tell your wife that. That's not the guy to go to. Pick someone who understands this stuff. This might be a professional therapist. This might be a a well-trained, you know, a coach or a, a, a church leader, but someone who understands this stuff. Okay. Find them. They're out there. Okay. They're really not that hard to find. Yeah. Find someone who understands this stuff and go and put it all out there with one person. Just take that first step and see what happens. You know, I promise you this, you won't burst into flames, you won't dissolve into a pool of of sugar or or salt or whatever. It, it's you know, in and in fact, what I think will happen is you will feel relief, which is a form of joy. Um and you deserve that.
0: Amen. We've talked about what should happen when we're little kids. We've talked about how that shows up in our Adult lives.
1: Yeah. And, you know, uh, since we're, we're kind of using attachment as a, as a home base here, here's one of the ways that I look at sex addiction or pornography addiction um, through the lens of attachment. God created sex to be a means to an end. It's not an end in itself which is, which is, I'm not, let me just be clear. I'm not saying sex is only for procreation. Okay. Uh, sex is for pleasure too, but it's meant to be a pleasure right between, between a husband and a wife in the context of marriage. It's, it's meant to be that, that my, my partner, my wife is the end. She's the goal. She's who I want. Right. She, you know, closeness with her is the, is the end and sex is the means. All right. And what happens with addiction often is that those get swapped. And what I have an attachment to is the feelings that the sex gives me or the porn and masturbation gives me. And, And so then what happens is then when I'm intimate with my wife, she's a means for me to feel this physical sensation and this cocktail of neurochemicals as an end. And it's so much less than what God intends. And so I'm, I'm really um, not enjoying all that sex is meant to be. And my wife is going to feel used. She will intuitively feel like I'm using her for sex rather than using sex for her to get to her so it's a it's a disordered attachment that's happening there,
0: and all of this work that we're doing and that you're pioneering over there at daring ventures is to reorder it right
1: yeah yeah that's right let's let's do it the way God designed right which is to say that um we're both all in this thing and and we love each other, and it's and it's messy, and it's not perfect, and we also hurt each other. But then we repair, rupture, repair, rupture, repair, and then when we have sex, it's it's this beautiful, messy, imperfect. Up oh, sometimes there's a miss, and then we reconnect. Uh, expression of something so much bigger and greater. It, it's, I mean, you know, that I've had guys who, you know. And I'm talking old guys, guys who, you know, been sexual for longer than you and I have been alive. Um, and, and they say, Oh my goodness. Sex in sobriety, in recovery, sex with my wife, that's healthy is mind blowing compared to what I was doing out there in all my acting out. And, and, and I know that to be true. That's true. Yeah.
0: For you personally, Jake, What is your favorite thing about freedom from porn?
1: Oh my goodness. Integrity. Integrity. So, um, you know, part of my story is some very, very early abuse uh, that was hidden, you know, that was kept a secret. And so I carried that secret. And when you have a secret, you don't feel integrity because you're, you're not able to be your whole, you know, integrity comes from the same Latin root as, like an integer, which is a whole number, or integrated to to all be one. So yeah, I show up differently in this podcast and with my wife or with my friends or when I'm in therapy with somebody, right? But I'm still the same person, okay? One whole uh, person. If I have, if I'm having to keep a part of myself separate out there, then I lack integrity. And so because I uh, had that experience so young. I grew up all through childhood, all through adolescence, into my emerging adulthood, never experiencing integrity until I got into recovery. And it felt so good. It felt so good to be in integrity, to be in, to, and, and here, the way I, I, I say that integrity is not a value. I don't, when I'm doing core value work with people, I don't let them list integrity as a core value because I define integrity as the state of being congruent with my values. So I'm actually living out what my values are. That's integrity. I didn't want to give that. Once I felt that I'm like, this is too good. I don't want to give this up. And have I, of course, of course I have, but rupture repair, rupture repaired, no one's going to do it perfectly. That's actually part of being in integrity. And, and here's, and, and here's, what the last thing I want to say about that and why I think it's so important and essential. I can, I can do everything right on my end and just because of my wife's pain or betrayal trauma or fear or her own issues or whatever, we may still not connect. So, so that reward of intimacy and connection with my wife, wonderful as it is, as much as I may seek it, that can't be my determination of success or failure. The determination of success or failure has to be, did I show up and embody my values? Am I an in integrity? And when I say to myself, you know what? That didn't go the way I wanted. She's so upset, but I really think I did the best I could. I was honest. I was compassionate. I was kind. I wasn't accusatory. I wasn't defensive. You know, I, I really think I, I did the best I could there. When I say that to myself, you know what happens in my brain? I get a dopamine hit. What? Yeah, I get a dopamine hit by going I'm I'm on the right track here. I did that. And that dopamine hit is going to reinforce me to do that again in the future to keep going in that new direction. So that's the most important reward that you get in your recovery.
0: Wow. I am appreciating imperfection more than ever right now. Good. You know why? You're imperfect. <laughs> yeah. And that is the only way to have integrity.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's like, I mean, it should simultaneously make us long for Jesus to come back and breathe a sigh of relief because it's just reality for, for this life. And again, that's not an excuse, right? But my goodness, it's, it's permission to, to be real and be ourselves. Yes. Without that,
0: there's no recovery. And without that, there's no attachment. That's right. This is so good. Thank you for being on my show.
1: Hey, thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it. I've enjoyed this conversation uh, very much.
0: Me too. If somebody wants to get more involved with what you're doing, where would you point them?
1: Uh, DaringVentures.com. Not Adventures. DaringVentures.com or DrJakePorter.com. Um, I've got webinars and, and I've got all this pre-recorded stuff. But primarily what I do is I work with couples from all over the country, really all over the world that they've come. And they usually spend three or four days, just me and them. And we, uh, we work on some really deep change. So come see me here in Houston. I'll tell you all the great restaurants.
0: Man, I hope I get to do that. I hope I get to come to Houston someday. And... I hope you do too.
1: I do awesome. too. It, it, it's been a pleasure, Drew. I appreciate it.
0: Thanks again. And for everyone else out there, always remember you are God's beloved son. In you, he is well pleased.